Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a guest who is not an anesthesiologist, but someone very involved with critical care, who I have to say, I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time, and I'm thrilled that I finally roped him in. Dr. Derek Fine is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Nephrology here at Johns Hopkins. He's a nephrologist who does a lot of work, and he'll tell us a little bit about it, but certainly I've met him and gotten to know him through his work with patients in the ICU uh, when I'm on service there. And we're going to talk today about continual renal replacement therapy in the ICU, something that we experience quite a lot, but that can be a little confusing. And I think it's going to be a really great discussion. Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let me start by just asking a little bit about you. Tell us about you, your background, and how you got where you are and, and what your career, what your job looks like, how you spend your time. Sure. So um, I, as you can hear from my accent, uh, am a South African by birth. Came to the United States uh, more than 30 years ago and uh, did most of my training here. I went to med school at Johns Hopkins and did residency, fellowship, and have been on faculty here and sort of never left. 30 years later. So this is sort of my home. Um, currently an associate professor, uh, and I'm the clinical director of the Division of Nephrology. I spend probably 60, 70% of my time in patient care. And uh, it, it really that it involves everything, uh, outpatient dialysis, outpatient uh, clinical care, particular interest in lupus and HIV kidney disease. Mm. And rounding on inpatient services, probably 20 weeks of the year. Wow. Um, much of that in the ICUs, in the cancer center, and um, on the floors, different services. Fantastic. Um, well, I really appreciate you being here and um, everything you do, obviously, for our patients here at Hopkins. So let's, our, our focus today, obviously, you have a wide expertise and, and we could talk about a lot of things, but let's focus on CRRT. And as I said, that stands for Continuous Renal Replacement Therapy. So let me start by asking you, what is it? And is that an umbrella term? Are there, are there multiple types of CRRT? And if so, what are those? Yes, yeah, so CRRT is, is, is an umbrella term, and you could actually even include in that peritoneal dialysis. But I think when we're generally thinking about CRRT in the ICU, we're thinking about um, sort of hemodialysis modalities or hemofiltration. And the primary methods of doing this is through CDVHD or continuous venovenous hemodialysis. Um, there's continuous venovenous hemofiltration. Um, which is performed differently where you're not using a dialysate, but you're using replacement fluid with sort of high volumes of ultrafiltration. Um, there, there is a modality CVBHDF where you're doing dialysis and filtration. Um, 
my impression is most places will do either the hemofiltration or hemodialysis. I think several of the clinical trials did hemodiafiltration or HDF, and it was probably because there was a compromise between people who do one or the other, and they said, well, we'll just do half of both, and, and, and we can sort of reach an agreement as to how to run the trial. Um, but those are the main forms. Um, there, there is a, a modality that's sort of halfway there, which is called the PIRRT, is the acronym used. It's Prolonged Intermittent Renal Replacement Therapy. And that, that idea is, is using a CVVHD machine um, to do 12-hour treatments or, you know, not quite a 24-hour continuous treatment so that patients can come off the machine for periods of the day to do other things. It is gaining some popularity. Um, and the other sort of more prolonged dialysis is called SLED or slow, low-efficiency dialysis, where you might do eight-hour treatments. But in general, the CRRT or the CVVH and CVVHD is what we usually think of. Right. So let's just define some of those terms for folks who may not be familiar with them, because I, I actually think that a lot of people and even people who work in ICUs may think may not really kind of fully understand the difference between dialysis and ultrafiltration. So sure. take us through what those two things are. Right. So in general, when we refer to dialysis, we're actually referring to sort of toxin or, or solute removal. Um, and when we talk about ultrafiltration, that's really the removal of, of volume. Uh, fluid from the plasma. Um, so when we talk about CVVHD or hemodialysis, what you're doing is you're running blood countercurrent to your dialysate and you create a gradient of whatever's in either fluids and, and you diffuse substances across a semi-permeable membrane. And in that way, you can either remove things from the patient or add things like bicarb, for example. So that's your dialysis. It's really diffusion drives dialysis and its gradients. Um, hemofiltration is performed by removing ultrafiltrate, and, and with that, you drag all the solutory convection is the method there, and you basically dump your ultrafiltrate, but you need large, large volumes of it in order to get clearance, and then you have to replace that volume, otherwise you'll kill someone by volume depleting them, and you can add the Essentially, it's the same fluid as we, as we use for dialysate, but it has to be more sterile because it's going right into someone's vascular system. But you replace that removed ultrafiltration with a fluid that has this, almost the same components as what you would use for dialysis. And you effectively get the, the same result. And there's a debate as to some of the, the, the differences. But at least from a solute electrolyte standpoint, you get the same result. Okay. Now we, uh, I think, and this is going to be very embarrassing if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure we use CVVHD, right? In our, at least in our surgical ICUs. That is what we use. Um, we do a little bit of, you can call it uh, hemofiltration when we use replacement fluid for either clotting issues. And sometimes we manipulate the, the solute in the dialysate by using replacement fluid. And you can argue that that hemofiltration so we might do HDF at times, but we're not a predominant method at Johns Hopkins is hemodialysis. Okay. And now when we have a patient on CVVHD, we often will say to the nurses, you know, why don't let's try going up on the UF, right? Let's try to take more fluid off. 
that is that the same kind of ultrafiltration when we say that UF? Is that what we're talking about with a with a whole system that's CVVHF? Or is so in other words, are we now talking CVVHDF or is that different? Is that just volume removal? Right. So the, the difference is when we do ultrafiltration, you know, unless we're really aggressive, we, we may be removing, you know, three or four liters of fluid a day in, in someone who's getting a lot of fluid in. Our ultimate goal is maybe one or two liters, sometimes more if someone's massively volume overloaded. Um, so yes, there is some convection occurring there. You do remove whatever's in the plasma with, with that things that can cross the membrane. The difference with CVVH is that ultrafiltration rate could be two, two and a half liters an hour. And so you could be removing 50 liters a day. Um, so the UF or the ultrafiltration that we're using just for volume removal doesn't really contribute a, a large amount to that clearance. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So the indications for CRRT, or in the case we're talking about most commonly, as you said, CVVHD or CVVHF or some combination, but, you know, clearly renal failure, but what, what makes you say this patient needs continuous renal replacement as opposed to intermittent dialysis, which is what people I'm sure, especially in the lay public are much more familiar with. In other words, somebody goes to a dialysis center or even in the setting of someone who's in the hospital, they go down to the dialysis unit to get intermittent dialysis, which might take two, three hours. Why would, why would we say, you know what? No, this patient can't do that. They need this continuous therapy. Right. So, you know, obviously there will be different opinions on this, but in general, you know, intermittent dialysis obviously is, is effective. And, and we believe that a three and a half, four hour treatment of intermittent dialysis will get you similar clearance to 24 hours on CVVHD. Um, the issue with intermittent is that you have to do all your toxin and your fluid removal in a very short period of time. And those shifts um, may not be tolerated by patients, particularly from the fluid standpoint, when folks are getting large volumes of, of fluid and, and you need to be removing that, or you need to remove fluid from someone who's volume overloaded. So um, CVHD generally will be done in patients who are uh, volume overloaded, um, you know, a massive volume that needs to be removed because you can't get enough off with intermittent. But mostly in patients who have um, hypotension, who just won't tolerate fluid removal in a short period of time, and therefore you spread it out through the day. And uh, I think most people know that that would be a, a definite indication for CVVHD over intermittent. Um, other Times when you might use CVVHD would be in patients with intracranial hypertension, um, probably mostly because with solute removal, you get fluid shifts. And if you've got a swollen brain, you don't want to swell it more. It could be dangerous. There would be another population where we would definitely uh, consider using CVHD. And, and patients with you know, fulminant hepatic failure who also have renal failure where brain edema is, is a risk. Uh, would be another population where we would frequently use CVVHD over intermittent dialysis. So very large volumes that need to come off or either due to large obligate volume needs, or you just have someone who has massive amounts that need to come off, hypotension and uh, brain edema or, or, or intracranial hypertension. Those would be the two big, top, big areas where we would use this. Great. So it seems to me like the unifying theme here is 
people who can't tolerate large shifts for a given reason. So whether that's because they're hypotensive, whether that's because they have brain swelling, as you said, et cetera, then they need slower change. And so doing it over 24 hours continuously is obviously going to be a much slower change than trying to do it all in two to four hours. So that's, that's when we would use this for a patient. Now, it's a little different, right, for some reason, and I'm interested. So to do CVVHD, we need a catheter, right? We don't do this through a fistula. Even somebody who is at home getting intermittent dialysis, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday through their fistula, they come in, they get critically ill, they're hypotensive on pressors. They now can't get intermittent dialysis like we talked about because of the hypotension. And so they need continuous dialysis. Why do we then, why can't we do it through their fistula? Why do we need a separate line? It's actually a good question because there, there are studies out there. I believe there was one at the University of Michigan where they actually did use people fistulas and things went relatively well. Um, mm. I think that the main concern is you've got a very high flow in the fistula and you've got needles sitting in there and theoretically could erode if they're sitting in all day. Um, but but the, the main risk is bleeding. You know, if the patient moves and the needle comes out, people can literally exsanguinate in, in, in minutes. Mm. Um, so I think that's the big concern. I think that you'd have to train a whole ICU staff how to manage a fistula and, and what some of the um, problems can be when, when the fistula, you know, if the needle's not in a good place. So it, it can be done. Um, we have not. Um, I've been asked about it and have thought about it. And I think if I were desperate and a patient absolutely no other way of getting a line in, we could consider that I'd probably more likely do something like a, a slow, low efficiency dialysis in that situation. Um, but it, it really is because the access that people aren't trained to access. And then you probably don't want to leave a needles in there for prolonged periods of time. So you do need a, 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 a catheter. That, that said, we do sometimes you have to make a decision. And if someone does have a fistula and they have borderline blood pressures and they're already on dialysis. You're not so worried about them getting acute kidney injury. Um, you may decide to use a little bit of pressure to, to get to your goals and use the fistula. And, and we do do that, make that decision. And it's, it's a little easier because we know their kidneys have already failed. Right. So, the, you know, certainly we worry about the brain, but usually we can help the brain with a little pressure. So, right. But you have to make a judgment call when you're in that situation. Great. All right. So when we talk about these catheters, we call them Shiley's if they're placed not tunneled. Um, and then there's a tunneled version. Uh, is there anything special about these? I mean, they're obviously dual lumen, one for inflow, one for outflow. They're pretty big. Is there anything uh, you know else important to know about these catheters that are used for continuous dialysis? I mean, they, they certainly are big. Um, and that comes with, with its, its own risk. Um, you know, infection rates may be a little higher when you're using a bigger catheter. The uh, venous and arterial ports are distant from each other because you, you don't want recirculation. And that's why when you use the lines reversed, you're not getting as good clearance because of the recirculation problem. Mm -hmm. um, but they're just large bore catheters and they need to be large because you need to run blood through the circuit at 250 or 300 milliliters a minute, that's, that's pretty high flow. So not, not a whole lot special. Um, you know, obviously the uh, tunnel catheters are 
better in that you don't get infection. But, you know, when you switch from one to the other or when you should put in a tunnel catheter, is probably a different question and right. depends on your resources also. Right. Um, obviously, I mean, the big one that comes to mind is if you have concern about impending infection or current infection, you certainly don't want to put a tunneled line in because it's a much bigger deal to get out if the patient ends up being bacteremic. So that's for us, I think, or short term. If you if you think it's just going to be short term, yes. you put a temporary line in and there's no reason to tunnel that. Right. And you know, we do have patients where, you know, we where it's so clear they're, they're not going to come back for a while. And we may even start off with, with a tunneled catheter. And we're lucky here that we have, you know, IR folks that will often get lines in the same day you want them. But I agree if there's infection concerns and you really don't think this is going to be a lot long term, um, just place this, the, the tunneled catheter. But the infection rates are obviously, much, sorry, non-tunneled. Right. But infection is really the biggest concern. Now, do you have a preference or is there any reason to think that one site is better than another? Right IJ, left IJ, a subclavian, ephemeral. Are they kind of all equal in your mind in terms of, you know, kind of flow rates and things or is one better than another? You know, there's, this has been written about and the right IJ is, is, is your best site. Um, it actually turns out if, if you're thinking flow, which is really the, the big thing, you need your flows. You don't want the machine clotting off. You don't want alarms all the time. If you look at some of the, the expert recommendations, they would say that after right AJ, you should go femoral mm. and, and then left IJ. And I know there's some folks here that hate left IJs. They're worried about sort of erode, um, you know, the, hitting the, um, superior vena cava as they come across. Um, right. we've had a patient where the tip of the catheter eroded through just above the SVC, um, because if it flips up, the, t- the tips of, these temporary catheters are actually quite hard if you've ever pushed, pushed on them. Yeah. And you can imagine if that's sitting up against a vessel wall, um, it can erode through. And we, we've had that a couple of times in my, my career here where, where catheters erode through a vessel and, and it's that left IJ because yep. it sits at, the, at that, that funny angle. Um, there, there was an interesting study I came across. I believe it's out of France. And I'm, I, if, if you want the reference, I can probably find it. It's one of those ones I always have to search on Google for. Sure. Where looking at infection rates, what they showed is in um, obese patients, the infection rates of the you know, femoral catheters are much higher than the neck. But when you look at people on the thinner side, on sort of that lower turtle of, 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 of weight, that the IJ infections were, were a little higher than, than the femoral infections. And Interesting. I, I think that the, the risk, at least my assessment of that, is that the distance from the skin to the vessel wall is really the, the biggest predictor of, of infection because it right. comes from, from the outside. And if you've ever put a line in someone who's really thin, like the IJ is literally sitting on the skin there. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that that's something to think about. You know, you're basically putting a, the, the, the distance between where the catheter enters the skin and the vessel could be a millimeter. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of an interesting idea that, at least if you've got someone when you're doing ephemeral, you've got that distance between the skin and the vessel and that may be beneficial in some patients. But not that we're doing that, but I, it, is, it was an interesting finding. And so at least I'll tell you, if you have to put ephemeral in someone, and especially if they thin, don't feel so guilty because maybe it's the right thing. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I was not aware of that study, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, and so that is really interesting. It is, you're absolutely right that skinny people, uh, on, you know, uh, their, their IJ is just below the surface. And so yeah. there's, there's not a lot of room, um, for, uh, for buffer there. What about placement in terms of how deep you want it? Is there, you know, when we place a, a triple lumen, for, you know, for presser infusions, we normally think kind of cavoatrial junction is the, is the goal. Is that true also for a dialysis catheter or do you want it yeah. elsewhere? I think you want the tip in the right atrium and, you know, the, the arterial port where the blood's coming in is in some of these, most of these catheters higher up and, um, and it's a side port. There's different catheters there. there there's some interesting ones that called the palindrome is one where both the arterial and venous actually look the same and they've designed it in a way that you can use it either way and you don't get recirculation. But in general, these temporary catheters have a side port or more, often more than one. Um, that is used for the arterial, so the you know removing the blood from the patient. And if your catheter is too high, that side port can sit up against the vessel wall, and and then you start getting issues with with um, vacuum and, and obstruction of of that that side port. So generally, if you're having issues with a dialysis catheter and it's in a right IJ, look at putting it a little bit deeper. Um, and and often it is that the catheters sitting up in, at that, that junction and, and folks doing that with the other central lines, but it's a little different. For the femorals, um, we tend to use the longer catheters. You know, when I was a fellow, we used these 21 centimeter and, and I think nowadays they're using up to 30 centimeters. They get right up there in the, in the IVC. Wow. Um, so, so there are, they, you'll use the, the longer catheter um, on the femorals. They tend to not have as much problems from a yeah. clotting standpoint. Okay, great. So you want this a little deeper than you would want a traditional central line, as you said, for, for maximizing flow, avoiding, you know, getting the kind of side of the vessel sucked up and preventing flow. When, and you've already touched on this, but I think one of the real frustrating things when you've got a patient who really needs this treatment, this therapy, is when you continually have them clotting off the circuit. So tell me a little bit about that. First of all, we don't use anticoagulation, you know, the way you do, for example, with somebody on ECMO, right? We don't, we don't sure. at baseline anticoagulate someone because they're on renal replacement therapy. So is there a point where you, how do you troubleshoot the catheter that continues to clot? One thing you mentioned is maybe you need to get it in a little farther or use a longer catheter. What else comes to mind? Right. So, you know, obviously making sure mechanically it's in the right place is, um, it's a good thing if you're using a left IJ, could you get one in on the right? Um, but th this is, as you know, so the bane of our existence when it's when it happens because it, it is very difficult to manage in some patients. So in general, at least at our institution, we do not use anticoagulation up front. Some institutions will use citrate anticoagulation, which you can talk about in a minute, in everybody. And, you know, we've sort of done that assessment over the years and said to put everybody on a modality for the number of patients you might be treating um, is not way that well for us. It's technically difficult and there are um, other issues. And so we tend to wait for the problem. And you can argue that maybe isn't the best way. And we've, we've looked at other ways of doing this. But right now, that's what we do. Um, if the patient clots once, we say, well, let's try it again. And once they clot a second time, we say, okay, let's start doing some things. Um, 
We do use um, pre-filter replacement fluids, so we'll run normal saline in at you know 250 or 500 cc's per hour. The idea there would be you dilute the blood out. Um, I think this is a controversial area. I'm not sure everyone believes it does a whole lot. Um, but And the reason is, if you've got your blood flowing at 250 and you've got replacement fluid at 250, sorry, the blood flow is 250 a minute and the replacement is 250 an hour, you're effectively diluting the blood 160th. Right. And you can really say, well, do you really believe that that's helping? But what's amazing is that most patients that we do this, it, it don't clot again. And it's probably just luck. It was because they, the fact they clotted the first time was luck. Right. And, and so does it work or not? Sometimes it, they clot, 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 you put them on and it works. I don't know. It, it logically doesn't make sense that it does, but it, it gives us one thing to try that's relatively benign. What's the downside? You need to pull that fluid off on the other end and occasionally someone forgets. Once in 10 years that happened. Right. Um, but that for that patient might have been significant. Um, and also if you're giving saline on one end and you're pulling plasma on the other, you can create an acidosis because you're pulling bicarbonate and you can lower things like calcium. So there's a little bit of a downside, but the volumes aren't that significant. Your dialysate flow is so much greater. It usually, uh, balances things out and, and you don't get into too much trouble. Okay. If that doesn't work, um, we'll use heparin. Um, they, they are, if, if you look at writing in this area, there are varying opinions. Um, some folks will immediately try and get the um, PTT up to, you know, 35 to 45 seconds, um, a fully anticoagulate patients. We tend to use a, just a low standard rate at first something like 500 units an hour, obviously monitoring PTT, and you hope that that works. And again, a certain percentage of patients seem to do great on that. Now, if someone's already on anticoagulation, put it in on the venous, sorry, on the arterial end of, of the blood flow and put it right into the cartridge, might as well. And um, once you're running anyway and you just monitor the, the coagulation study, um, what's quite popular at some institutions it is what's called citrate regional anticoagulation and to be honest we we haven't yet instituted at our institution and you know i've probably in the past 10 years there probably two or three times i wish we had it but the question is is it worth doing it for that n and we can talk about what some of the the downsides are in a second um, but the idea there is you run citrate in pre-filter um, and citrate will chelate calcium and therefore your coagulation factors don't clot and, and, and then you have to give calcium into the venous system to, to get the calcium levels up. Um, there are some institutions that do it for every patient on CVH and um, it's even on, on our sort of guidelines that the nephrologists follow. It's constant. They, they put that as the number one recommendation, but mm. I'll tell you that most institutions are Many aren't using citrate anticoagulation. Um, it's it's thought to reduce clotting, uh, improve you know circuit times, um, and so that's the main reason people like it. The downside is you really need very um, good protocols. You need um, nursing to know exactly what they're doing. It is it's labor intensive. 
Um, you have to be monitoring the calcium that's coming out on, of, of the cartridge. You have to monitor serum calcium. You have to be running a calcium drip. You have to monitor magnesium. You have to watch out for uh, metabolic alkalosis. If the citrate gets metabolized in the liver, if they have liver failure, you have to watch out for metabolic acidosis. And so, you know, we've made the, the, the decision that for one case in two years where we would have really liked to have had it to be doing all that extra work with some risk that maybe that one in two years someone would actually get hurt by it, um, that we gener- we have not done it in our institution. That said, prior to COVID, we were looking at putting in a protocol and then COVID came around and everything's been put on hold. But it, it, it is nice to have the problem is if you're only using it on those few patients where you absolutely can't get their circs to run, then it's much more difficult because people aren't used to it. People aren't used to it. So there's probably a balance of how often you should be using it to, to get people into it um, so that the benefit then outweighs the risk of using it. But it is quite popular and, and is recommended by our national society. Okay, interesting. And of course, it also has the advantage of avoiding heparin exposure. So if that's an issue oh, for a patient. That's a, a big one and so much less bleeding as well. Sorry, that's yeah. another aspect. Is, is you Absolutely. don't get the bleeding used with heparin or hit. Okay. So I've seen, I feel like every week there's a new article coming out uh, trying to figure out whether it's better to start early or late, right? And so I want to get your thoughts on this, but let me just frame it because we talked earlier about the patient who's on dialysis at home and then they come in, they get sick, they're in the ICU, now they need continuous dialysis. That's not who we're talking about because that patient has longstanding renal failure. Of course they need dialysis. There's no waiting on dialysis for that patient. But we're talking here about a patient who's got perfectly functioning kidneys at home. They come in, they, they have surgery, if we're talking about the surgical ICU, and things don't go well. They get infected, they get sick, they get critically ill, they're on pressors, and now they develop renal failure or they start developing renal failure. Okay, so they're, let's say you've got, you know, the patient who, who, makes, who stops making urine completely and their potassium goes up to eight. Well, that's easy, right? We have to dialyze them. But let's take the patient who is, they're making some urine. It's not great. Their potassium is still okay. They're starting to accumulate fluid, but it's not, you know, overwhelming yet. Their uh, creatinine and their BUN are, are creeping up every day, but, you know, so it's that patient. For that patient, is it better to say, you know what, let's just put them on CVVHD now, or is it better to wait until they, you know, kind of become completely anuric or their, or their electrolytes get out of whack or they get severely acidotic? All right. For the answer to that question, hang in there, stay with us. We'll be right back. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the five-hour energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. All right, we're back, and the question was about early versus late starting of CRRT. Right, so to, to, to frame this question, it's a really important question and, and a good one, and, and to frame it, what we grapple with in, in, in our world of patients requiring dialysis in ICUs is that the mortality rate is still 50%. And actually, if you want to know if it's a good study and less, you know, lower than 
45% of patients are dying, then you maybe maybe not have the right patient population. At least, or maybe we're just getting better at NK, but but right now the, the mortality rates in most studies sit somewhere between say 45 and 55%. And so we're saying, well, how can we reduce that that mortality? And it's you know, is it catheters, infections, all those things. But one of the the thoughts is if we get more toxin out or we get it out earlier, maybe that's going to help us, right? That's sort of the, the, the big question. And you, you may be going to be asking me about dosing. And that's the question of if we remove more versus less. This one is if we remove toxin earlier versus later, are we going to benefit the patient? Yeah. And there have been a number of studies that, that have looked at this. I think four of them in the New England Journal of Medicine. So they must be brilliant studies if they're in the New England <laughs> Journal. You know, the JAMA one's always show something else and then they go to the New England Journal and, and they bigger and they better and they find the, the more, you know, I think a little more conclusive, but, but well done studies as well as you can do them with these populations. And, and the bottom line is, you know, starting early and, and they use very nice criteria for when they would start. So usually it's a stage three AKI, so your creatinine is three times baseline or it's above four when it started below four. And actually if, if you, ever have a med student rotating with you and they say, when, when should I start dialysis on a patient? Have them read these articles because the, the group that gets standard care, they have these, these guidelines as to when are you going to start the late starters? And it, it, it teaches the med student, okay, these are the things that are going to make me dialyze a patient. You know, they, they'll tell you AEIOU, but I really don't want AEIOU, you yeah. know, acidosis or hyperkalemia. I really want to start dialysis two hours before kind of like, you know, aortic stenosis, you want to do the surgery the day before they crump. Yes. But I don't know when that's going to be, obviously. So we set the, these these criteria, whether it's, you know, worsening acidosis, hyperkalemia, that's not yet dangerous. Um, and and that, that is challenging. Um, so these early studies say, well, let's just do a hard cutoff. You you get, let's say the, the latest one was the START AKI study, which I thought was the, the biggest, and it, it, it was well done international study. Um, and they say, well, let's get to this point. And if you hit this point 12, within 12 hours, you're starting dialysis, or I'm going to meet certain criteria. And I don't know the exact ones for that study, but it's usually a BUN threshold, an acidosis threshold, 7.2, thereabouts or less, uh, a potassium threshold where you're doing things and it's not improving, um, and, and volume related respiratory issues that would then force your hand in, in, in doing dialysis. And these studies also, the, the, the bigger ones all show one thing, and that is if you do the standard, you know, 30 to 40% of patients never need dialysis. And you could argue that's a pretty good thing. Um, but the big endpoints, the mortality is no difference. And that's really what we, we care about the most. Um, and so one might argue it doesn't matter. And so do it when it works for you. So if it's Friday at 3 p.m. and you've got someone around to put a line in and you really think this patient's going on dialysis anyway. Um, why wait till three in the morning when their FiO2 is up to 90% and now we're rushing and putting lines in? And so that, that, that has been my logic until this most recent paper. And that is it doesn't make a difference. And I'm going to do it when it works for the team and when it, so it's, logistics do come into it. The one interesting finding of, of the most recent study was that of those who survived, if you were an earlier start, you were more likely to remain on dialysis. And, and I think we always have this concern, right, in our patients on CVVH, 
is it's hard to know what their volume is. You know, they're on presses already sometimes. And, and so are they still on presses because they still have multi-system organ failure? Or they are now on presses because we're matching the ins and outs and we're not taking into account insensible losses. Mm-hmm. And now we're giving them a more prolonged exposure to hypotension. And actually in this most recent start AKI trial, I believe there was, when they looked at some of the subgroups, there was more hypotension in the group that got an early start. And so there may be a downside there. Um, and so I recently started to lean a little bit more to let's wait. That said, I think we have a good sense. It'd be a nice study to study, you know, which patients do we think are going to need dialysis and then watch and wait, but probably can't do that ethically. But you kind of know who's not going to make it through the weekend, right? It's, it's the patient is, they're not urinating. They just start on pressers and on two pressers for the last 12 hours. And you, 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 those people are highly unlikely to, to recover, you know, over the, soon. Right. And those people in those patients probably doesn't make a difference. Um, I think the big difference in the studies were those 30% of people that never needed dialysis. And so now you didn't harm them by putting them on a machine and taking too much fluid off them. Right. Though I'm not Plus sure they that. went that granular on their study. Right. So, and obviously the complications of putting in a line and the potential for yeah. infection and clotting, et cetera. So, so big picture probably doesn't make a big difference, okay. but keep in well, mind some of those nuances. Yeah, great. And I think the reason we keep seeing more and more articles and studies about this is that people want to know the answer and don't yet know it, right? Uh, as far as we know, it's hard It's hard to say. Uh, maybe, as you said, a suggestion that maybe waiting is, is beneficial right. to some extent if you can. Um, this makes me think about the BICAR ICU trial, right? So you've got a patient who has an acidosis. They've got some component of renal failure, not complete. And, you know, they, they're not on dialysis yet. Um, their renal function is impaired and they're acidotic. Do you advocate putting them on a bicarb drip with the hope that you can avoid dialysis? That seems to be what that trial suggested was possible and that there was some benefit to that. Yeah, so we, we get into this discussion quite a bit in our ICU and you know a lot of time it's like just why don't you just turn the vent up a little bit and blow off that CO2 but that's a different issue um, and, and I leave that to our experts um, but the problem with CVVHD and acidosis is it's really not that effective um, if you think about it and if I could draw you a picture, it'd be, be great. But if you think about it, the bicarb in our dialysate, the one we use is 35, right? And let's say you have someone who's serum bicarb. I'll make it five. Yeah, extreme, okay. right. Extreme. The most bicarb you will get in that patient per liter of dialysate, if you have full efficiency, would be the difference between your 35 and five. So that's 30 milligrams of bicarb per liter of dialysate. So if we're running our standard dialysate flow rates of two liters an hour, um, I'm going to get 60 milligrams of bicarb into you in that hour. And, and then there's also this apparent bicarbonate space, in which case you're going to need even, you're going to need boatloads of bicarb up front when you have really low bicarbs. Um, so 60 milligrams is, is, is nothing. Right. Um, it's about one amp. Yes, yeah, it's just over one amp. So if, if you really have someone who's acidotic and you want to get ahead of it now, is dialysis still maybe reasonable to maintain? And, and if you've got other reasons, they are in renal failure. But if it's purely you want to get bicarb in the patient, you want to correct that acidosis as quickly as possible, give bicarb. 
um, there's it's so much more efficient, right? You can give two, three amps. You, that's three hours, two, three hours of dialysis. Right. So it's just not efficient enough. That said, if you're giving too much bicarb, you're going to have sodium issues. And, um, but you're going to give water if, if that becomes an issue. But so in those cases, yes, there's more than just bicarb. But from an efficiency standpoint, yeah, um, giving bicarb peripherally is, is going to be much more effective. Great. And as, as my residents who've, who've been with me in the ICU know, for a pure lactic acidosis, I never give bicarb, and I think it's a mistake. But for renal failure in combination with lactic acidosis or, or in the absence of lactic acidosis, but for a patient with renal failure, that's a different situation. And, and I think what a lot of people don't realize, as you just said, is when a patient goes on dialysis, they are getting bicarb, right? So, so to give them bicarb before they're on dialysis is, is hopefully just going to put off the need for dialysis and maybe avoid it completely if acidosis is your main right. issue. Right. right. And, and, and the other time that comes up is where the acidosis isn't improving on dialysis and we're being asked to increase the dialysate flow rate. And again, give them bicarb. There's no point in going up that dialysate flow rate where you're now going to start removing more phosphorus and the, the bang for your buck is just not there at that point. Right. So once a patient is on CRRT, what variables can we change? You mentioned bicarb, and I think there are different different solutions with higher or lower levels of bicarb. That what else can we kind of control when a patient is on a CVVHD or CVVHUF circuit? Right. So... So bicarb is generally fixed. I think there may be some solutions that have a little bit higher or lower, but in general, most places will have a bicarb of 35. At least ours are all fixed. We can't okay. adjust that too much, in which case you're going to have to give the bicarb if, or, or up the dialysate flow. Um, the things that we can manipulate from an electrolyte standpoint is the potassium. Uh, we have dialysates with different amounts of potassium. You can always add potassium to a bag if, if you'd, only have low dial low potassium dialysate, your pharmacy can add potassium. Um, we can manipulate the calcium. So we have um it used to be we only had like three calcium, which is the equivalent of one point five ionized millimole per, per liter, or a zero, and you would mix and match bags and, and get to the calcium you want. And nowadays we have uh bags with physiologic calcium uh in them. Um but you can we have different formulations with different calcium in them. Um, and sodium, potentially, if you have someone who you want to make them hypernatremic, for example, uh, a neuro ICU patient, you can add sodium to the bag. Now, you can't take sodium out of the bag and you can't add water to the bag, but we can use water peripherally if we want to actually create a hyponatremic effective dialysate and it's a hyponatremic patient. So we can manipulate things using replacement fluid with things like D5 to, to get that sodium content lower. But, but those are the, the main things that we can manipulate. We obviously manipulate dialysate flow. If, if for example, there's you know too much phosphate coming out, we just can't keep up with it. There's really potassium and calcium are the, are the main things that, that we're going to follow. Um, magnesium, we don't need... Uh, it's physiologic in the bag. People often look at the bag and the magnesium looks like it's really low and worry about hypomagnesemia. It turns out magnesium is ionized, just like calcium, in which case that low magnesium in the dialysate is actually physiologic to your ionized magnesium, mm. so if anyone's worried about that. Interesting. Okay. Um, but we don't, we don't manipulate um, that either. So it's, it's really relatively fixed. 
you, we can change the bags around a little bit. Calcium and potassium are the two that we can probably manipulate most. Okay. And then of course the volume we're taking off. So, you know, on one extreme, you might have a patient who can't tolerate They're They're so hypotensive. They're on such high doses of pressors that you can't take any volume off. Uh, and because they've got other infusions going in, they may actually be accumulating volume despite being on CBVHD. And all you're doing is the dialysis portion, but not taking any fluid off. And then on the other extreme, you mentioned a, an indication for CVHD might actually be someone whose kidneys are okay, but they're so volume overloaded that we need to get some fluid off. And that's rare, but it, you know, to have someone who can make good urine, but isn't just, isn't able to get right. that, you know, they're 40, 50 liters up. Right. And so on that extreme, you really, you, you would use it mostly for the ability to take volume right. off. And, and, and one thing I'd probably sort of forgot to mention, I wasn't thinking that, is, is we do what's, all, what's called CVVU, uh, Slovenia venous ultrafiltration, where you don't need any, don't use any dialysate. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll do that sometimes in, in ECMO patients where they just need some fluid off, and, and that way we can still monitor their kidney function. Um, so we, we do that relatively frequently um, in our cardiac patients. Um, it's also called scuff, slow, continuous ultrafiltration. Mm -hmm. um, where you just use a CDVH machine and you only do the ultrafiltration. So absolutely, um, ultrafiltration is a, a big thing we can adjust. Usually leave it to the ICU teams because they're on the ground and they're there minute to minute. Yeah. But it's a joint decision. You mentioned before that in addition to the question of early versus late, there's also a question of dose. Tell me what you meant by that and, and how we think about that. Right. So dose is, really measuring how much uh, solute are you removing from the patient, right? So, you know, in, in intermittent hemodialysis, we actually have specific measures we use to know that we're achieving adequacy is, is the term we use. Um, and so there, there is, is, is a lower limit at which if you go below that limit of removing toxins, then you probably do harm the patient and, or, or, don't give them the full benefit of, of dialysis. And so there have been trials looking at what is that dose. So the way we dose dialysis is by the, the dialysate flow rate. Um, blood flow rate doesn't affect things a whole lot in CVVH. In, in intermittent, it's, it's the bigger component because our dialysate flows are, you know, in, in, in the dialysis outpatient units, we're running dialysate flows at 800 milliliters a minute, right? In the dialysis, in, in the ICUs, we're running dialysis dialysate at 2,000 cc's an hour. So dialysate manipulation is going to get us that extra clearance when it mm -hmm. comes to an ICU patient. So the more dialysate flow you have, the more clearance you're going to get. Yep. And so studies have been done that say, you know, is more better. Um, we know that more is better than not enough, but the question is, what is not enough? So the studies that have been done, there are two big ones. One was a VA NIH and one was a Australian New Zealand study that looked at dosing. And the two, two famous studies, I think I sent you those two. Mm -hmm. um, one was a um, sort of 20 milliliters per kilogram per hour is how you dose usually is based on milliliters per kilogram per hour. So uh, someone who weighs 100 kilos will get 2,000 milliliters per hour of dialysate um, versus 35. That was the VA study. And the, the Australian one was 25 versus 40. And really in both studies, the outcomes were 
exactly the same. And at least, again, the mortality was your big outcome, no difference. Hypophosphatemia, more common in the high flow. But that was pretty much the, the only difference. Um, so what these studies were measuring was enough versus more. And the more didn't help. Okay. But, but the thing is, we do need to reach enough, right? And, and in right. a clinical trial where you're running 20 milliliters per kilogram per hour and you're ensuring everyone's staying on the machine for 24 hours a day, we, we know they got enough. But in the real world, I think we feel like that's kind of borderline because there are other things that are going on in the real world. And so we tend to go more toward that 25. So the guidelines would say 20 to 25 milliliter per kilogram per hour. And I usually round up towards the upper end of that um, to just give us a little bit more than, than uh, the lower limit. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about some things we need to watch out for when patients are on CORT. One thing that we see a lot is thrombocytopenia. Why does that happen? Are the platelets getting caught up in the circuit? It, I don't believe anyone knows. It, it, it probably is that, you know, the, the membranes are, are synthetic, right? So they, they, they're not normal. There's something about them that the body is probably recognizing or the platelets are attaching to. That's the thought that there is some consumptive aspect to this. You know, we know, for example, that some membranes can activate complements or result in bradykinin release. And so the old membranes we used to use for continuous diuresis, you couldn't use ACE inhibitors because the bradykinins would build up in the body and mm. people get hypotensive. So these membranes aren't normal and, and there's probably some effect. Others might know more than I do as far as coming up with molecular mechanisms, but it seems sure. there's this consumption that happens in some patients. We, we seem to notice it more in our cardiac patients and we don't know why that is. So it seems like the CCU is always where we're getting called for this problem and we never figured out why that is. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's something to keep an eye out for. You've already mentioned hypophosphatemia. So obviously we monitor phosphate very closely in these patients and replete it as needed. I know uh, being on CVVHD affects the protein uh, levels in a patient. So if someone is getting fed, uh, let's say they're getting enteral feeds um, or they're getting parenteral feeds, you have to take that into account, uh, right? And, and they are going to need more protein when they're on CVVHD. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if the CVHD is just sort of a marker of sort of hypercatabolism and these folks are just sort of breaking down protein and muscle and, and, and other things. Um, keep in mind also it lowers your core temperature up to a degree. So when a patient hits 37.5 on CVVH, maybe they're febrile. Yep. Um, we don't know what that exact number is, but keep in mind that they, they, it does suppress uh, the temperature as well. So that would be another thing just to know about if, if you're yep. monitoring someone for a fever. Great. But Obviously, it makes electro- me think this metabolism issue is high. Yep. Obviously, electrolyte levels. Uh, are there other things, you know, other potential complications you, you think people need to look out for for their patients who are on, the, on this therapy? You know, I think there's this, when you think you've reached your volume goal, there's this, keep I is equal to O issue. And I think we forget to take insensible losses into account a lot of the time. So, you know, and, and you've seen that you get, get the consults. I've got a patient, he's 40 liters ahead over his course in the hospital, but they've been in the hospital for a month and you go examine them and maybe there's you know, 
five liters, right? That where's that other 35 gone? And it's just, they're sweating and they're breathing through right. a trach. And I think we sometimes need it. If, if someone's not making sense and their blood pressure is lower than you would think it should be running them even run them positive, put them a liter positive or, you know, I would say minimum 500. Right. We, we were very bad at measuring insensible losses, but it's going to be a minimum of 500. You need to keep them positive and maybe more once you think you've reached your volume goal. The, the other thing just to um, make this point, because I think it's important is CVVH is not good for removing poisons um, or potassium in someone who's very hyperkalemic. So, you know, if you really want to get something out of a patient, you know, the potassium is extremely high. They've got lithium on board or ethylene glycol or anything like that. You need to do intermittent dialysis. And I would put someone on a regular dialyzer, use presses as I need to. You don't need to take fluid off, get whatever it is out of their body, and then put them on CVVH. Yep. Um, but CVH is not good at removing anything fast. Yep. Great. All right. That's really helpful. So let's talk about how you get a patient or you know when a patient's ready to come off. You've got a patient, they 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 used to have, their kidneys used to be fine. You know, they got renal failure from their sepsis. You're in the ICU. They seem to be recovering. What indicators do you look for to say, yeah, I think they're ready either to stop completely or I guess the easier one is ready to go from CVHD to IHD is really can they tolerate the the, as we've talked about before, the larger fluid shifts and are there, you know, are there ins not so high that you can, you know, you can get off two, three liters and that that's going to be enough. If someone's got five, six liters coming in every day, then they're not going to be ready for intermittent dialysis. But that aside, let's take the person who we think, yeah, you know, their kidneys seem to be getting better, uh, or at least they're, they're in general getting better. What, what do we look for to say, hmm, they might be ready to stop dialysis? Obviously, you, you, they need to be hemodynamically stable. And as you mentioned, the obligate fluid intake is going to make a big difference. And we like that number to get down to two to two and a half liters where you probably still would need in daily intermittent when you're at about two and a half. Once you get to two or less, you take those insensible losses into account. You may be able to keep up with every other day dialysis with intermittent therapy. Um, so that would be the first criteria. If they can tolerate intermittent dialysis, um, I would switch them over, get them off CVVH. I know some ICUs, keep everyone on CVH until they leave the ICU. Um, but we will tend to stop. And, and, and the other reason is while they're on CVVH and you're removing a lot of fluid, you may not see renal recovery, right? You're not going to see if they're going to urinate on their own. We often will stop it and suddenly a patient starts urinating and you go, where did that come from? Well, you're taking three liters a day. Maybe they, they're not going to pee. Right. Um, if their kidneys, even if the kidneys are working, um, certainly if the urine output's starting to increase, I'm going to be very, Tempted, or, or we'll, we'll try harder to say, listen, let's try get this patient off because I want to see what they're doing on their own. And if they're peeing enough, we can even use diuretics to manage the volume. And often on the renal recovery phase, folks will respond to diuretics. So you know, I think the key is really once you get them off, it's, it's going to be a much better way to monitor for renal recovery. Um, but it's so would you take be, someone... Uh, so would you take someone who is on CVVHD, uh, you know, let's say you're, again, it's easy if, if they're hemodynamically stable, they don't have much in the way of ends and you think, oh yeah, well, they still need dialysis, but we can go to IHD. Okay. But if you think someone is maybe not going to need dialysis at all, would you just leave them, you know, on the CVVHD circuit, but, but stop taking volume off and stop, or would you stop the, the dialysis? Like how would you kind of give them a trial to see how they do? 
Yeah, so there, so this is a good question. I, I, I think I know what you're asking, but even if you're not asking this, I think it's worth mentioning. So if, if you have someone who's on CVVH and maybe you're not sure they're going to tolerate intermittent dialysis, um, there is one method that I think that we often don't use and probably should use more often, and that is stop taking fluid off, let them accumulate some fluid, and then just turn up the CVVH ultrafiltration rate to, you know, 500 an hour. And, you know, if they can't tolerate that, they're probably not going to tolerate intermittent dialysis. Right. And then you know, okay, they're not ready. I'm going to just keep the machine running. And um, I don't lose a circuit. You know, these aren't cheap. Um, I don't use the manpower for giving them a trial on intermittent where I've got to take a nurse, use three, four hours of their time to bring them over to the room, run the machine. Then we find out, oh, they didn't tolerate any fluid off. Well, I could have figured that out right. by just stopping the UF overnight, turning it up to 500 or a liter an hour if you want, even for one hour. If they don't tolerate that 500 off, it means that their refill rate it's just not there to, right. to accommodate the fluid often. So I think that's what you're asking. And it, it, it's a really nice way to, to save labor and, and to save your circuits and, and get your answer really quickly. Yep. Um, alternatively, if you're thinking they're recovering, you know, they're making urine, just turn the machine off. Just take them right. off the machine, see what they're doing on their own and, and mo- monitor their creatinine and your, then the urine output. And that's, the easiest way to do that. Right. And you can always put them back on if you need to. And you know, what, what you see with these patients when you do that is some of them do great. They make urine, they clear their BUN creatinine, electrolytes, et cetera. Others might make great urine, but it's interesting, right? You might, they might be making a lot of urine, but they're not clearing solute. And so those patients still need dialysis, even though they're, they're making urine. Um, And then you have the patients who might, you already mentioned this, but who might not make a lot of urine. Part of that might be because you got to let them accumulate some fluid before they can make urine. And part of it might be because they need some, some Lasix or some other diuretic to help them in that immediate kind of recovery phase. And so that can be pretty uh, helpful as well. All right. Uh, So I think we've covered most of, of what I was hoping to get through. Um, Let me ask you this. Is there anything on the horizon? Is is there any new technology, anything that's going to change what we do or uh, are we, or do we have what we have for the foreseeable future? Um, nothing specific that I'm aware of, but it doesn't mean it's not there because there's smart people out there trying to figure out new ways of doing things. Um, but at this point, I think we're stuck mostly with what we have. There are, there is a push, I, I believe, and, and, um, there, there are different companies that make different continuous dialyzers and some have different, um, focuses and, there, there is a push in some arenas to do more um, PIRRT, this uh, prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy, um, because I think that it, it, it gives you freedom to do what you need to do for your patients, like physical therapy, for example, get them out of bed. If they're attached mm-hmm. to a machine, um, that's hard to do. We have done it with someone attached to a machine, but then you've got to have batteries and the thing's going to be plugged in. It, it's very challenging. So I think that this trend towards doing more of this, what I call short CVVHD, you know, I'm going to do 14 hours a day and take you off the machine, 
You can go get your CT. You can go do your physical therapy. We'll give you eight hours off to see what you're doing on your own. Um, I think it's, it's something on the horizon. There's a little more of that going on. And I think there need to be some trials that compare that, for example, with CVVH. Um, it takes a little bit more thought. So you, you, I'm not saying we're lazy, but it, CVVH is kind of easy, right? You, oh, I'm, I'm 400 cc's ahead for that. I'm going to just turn up the UF. Um, with PIRRT, you need to sort of make a decision. How much fluid am I going to take off in those 14 hours? Because I know there's going to be eight hours where something else is going to happen. Um, so it's, it's a new way of thinking, perhaps. It, it's somewhere halfway between regular dialysis and CVVH. I think we can manage it. Yeah. But it, it, it will take a little bit of um, transition. And, and, and different institutions are different. You know, in our institution, we have dialysis nurses that set the machines up and in, in many institutions, the ICU nurses do it, and, and the workflow would be very different in that case. And right. um, it may be more conducive to PIRT when you've got people on the ground just stopping the machine and restarting it at, at, at right. their women at end. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting to keep, keep an eye on. I did remember one other thing I wanted to ask you, which is this. You got a patient, they're on CVVHD, you want to get volume off, but their pressure doesn't seem to be tolerating it, right? They, their presser, they're either on pressors and they require you, you maybe we tolerate a little low level, you know, leave a fed to get some fluid off, but they just seem like their presser requirements going up every time you try to do this and that you can't get it off. I will often give these patients 25% albumin and I find that that helps. But I'm, my question for you is, is this just all in my head is, or is there any evidence that this is a, a, a therapy uh, that may help? Yeah, it theoretically should help, right? So, so albumin, I think the, the, what I've heard is, you know, one gram can pull in 17 cc's of, of fluid. Correct me if, if it's a different number you've heard. Um, and, and it does add some oncotic pressure. So in, in theory, um, it, it really should work. Um, and so I don't think there's a, a huge downside to, to trying albumin in someone, particularly if they have low albumin. Right. Um, I don't think you need to get the albumin much above three. Right. Is the number that usually comes to mind. I agree. With um, you. But, you know, if you've got someone where you're struggling, I think that the, it, it's certainly something worth trying. And it, it's a little trial and error, but in some folks, it really does work. Yeah. I find that if I have a patient whose albumin is, you know, 1.8, something like that, and I give them 25% albumin, you know, maybe um, 25 grams every four hours for six doses or every six hours for four doses over a day, that I can, it really often will help to get, to help facilitate getting some volume off if they weren't tolerating it before. All right, Derek, anything you want to add before we um, end? No, I think those were, you, you asked all the right questions. Um, these are challenging patients, and, and as I said earlier, the mortality rates are high, and so we, we certainly need to find ways of, of doing better. And any little advantage we can get is, you know, is, is a life. So um, I appreciate you giving me the time to, to discuss this. No, I'm incredibly grateful for you for taking the time. Um, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there something that you have been checking out lately a tv show a movie a book anything that uh, you would recommend the audience check out it depends on your taste i um I, I recently was told actually by one of the surgical icu residents i was rounding and there's someone from leeds who uh, is, is at hopkins and and i've always been a leeds united 
football fan in the Premier League. They just got to the Premier League, and so they stopped. One of the residents told me there was a, a documentary on uh, Amazon Prime that um, talks about Leeds United getting from the Championship League to the Premier League. Um, so I started watching that. I've got through part one. It's really cool, but also because it's, it's been my team since I was a kid, and they've been pretty awful for about 25 years. So that's if you like soccer, that that's uh, probably fun to watch. Um, from a book standpoint, um, one of my neighbors recently told me about a book, really not in a genre. Normally, I'm like a Jack Reacher kind of guy. Um, and, and this is sort of a book about magic. And it, it, it was a book called, it's actually a trilogy. It's called, I think, Shades of Magic. And, and the author is V.E. Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B. And uh, definitely not a genre that I, I thought I would be enjoying, but she just writes really vividly. And I think just a, just a great writer and the story is good and, and there's a lot of magic and it's these four different Londons that coexist and it's only certain people and go between them. And so it's a little fantasy and um, an interesting sort of main character um, who learns about some of her powers and it, it's, it's just so out of my, my, my general reading I, and, and just so well written. I, I, I would recommend that if, very you cool. want to try something different that's great i will definitely check that out i love fantasy novels so that sounds great and um i will tell you that i wouldn't have known what you meant by championship and premier league until i saw ted lasso so i think i've already recommended that if you haven't seen it yet the ted lasso um tv show on, on i believe it's on uh, apple tv plus is fantastic and that was okay. that was the most i've learned about the way the um european uh, soccer system works uh, um though certainly that's because I'm starting at zero. Uh, my, my recommendation would be, I'm reading this great book. Um, it's called The Other Wes Moore, One Name, Two Fates, uh, and it's by yeah. the author Wes Moore. I don't know if you've read this. It's very germane to Baltimore because there it. are... It's on the pile of books I need to read. Yeah. yeah I, do, I do actually have it. My it's son's really read interesting. It. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, the author is a guy named Wes Moore, who is a very successful, um, he's a lawyer, uh, he's done a lot of really interesting things, and he found out about another person named Wes Moore with the same name, unrelated, who had had a very different life, had had grown up in Baltimore, had ended up and now is in jail um, for life um, because of a crime that he was convicted of. And so he kind of got to know him, visiting him in jail, was intrigued by the fact that they had the same name, and then really does this amazing job of telling the tale of, of how their two lives diverged, uh, even though they both started off um, kind of in, in more similar circumstances. So it's very well-written, very interesting, um, and I recommend people check it out. Well, Derek, thank you so much again for taking so much time and coming on the show and teaching us about Pleasure. continual renal replacement therapy. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That was fantastic. I have wanted to get Derek on the show for years, and I'm so glad we finally did. I learned a ton. I hope you did, too. Let us know what you think. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Let others know what you think. We can all learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can also join the Facebook ACRAC group. If you enjoy the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting of the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. 
and become a patron. You can pledge however much you want per episode, and it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash or looking up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons and already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to the ACRAC team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. April Liu is our social media manager. And Dr. Kimia Kashkuli used to be our social media manager, and she's still a champ helping out whenever she can, and we really appreciate all of them. Thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed our original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Derek Fine, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 